This morning I'll be reading Romans 8, 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, those, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Well, it's been uh, great to be with you uh, going through Romans 8. And uh, we're studying it and looking at it like climbing a mountain. for those of you who haven't had a chance to watch 14 Peaks yet, uh, it's about a group of guys getting together to climb the highest peaks in the world. Uh, 14 of them, I think, in six months. Uh, and it is an amazing story of their ascent of these different mountains. In some ways, when we come to great passages of Scripture, it, it feels like you're ascending because you're learning more and more, you're understanding more and more, you're getting a vision of who God is and what he's done. And for any of you who've ever been uh, up on high mountain peaks uh, in uh, Colorado Springs, there's Pikes Peak. You can actually drive to the top there. And uh, Valerie and I have done that. Uh, Get up out there and you're in 14,000 plus feet and uh, you can barely breathe. Uh, But it's an experience to get up that high and see it. Um, I have some good friends who've been right at the base of Mount Rainier, if you've ever flown into Seattle or been in that area and just see this massive peak standing there. It's hard not to just stop and look at it. So Romans 8 is one of those passages that when we come to it, it really invites us to look and to climb and to understand more of what God has for us. So as we come to this passage this morning, I'd like for us just to pause again and pray for ourselves. And so uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to listen. Uh, We pray you'd uh, give us ears to hear. Uh, We know you have a word for each one of us this morning. Uh, So I pray for you to help people hear your voice. Jesus, that's a great promise that my sheep will hear my voice and we belong to you, Lord Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we need a good shepherd today. We need to ask you to help us uh, because we're weak and we're easily confused and uh, discombobulated emotionally about what's going on and we need to hear your voice. So. Jesus, help us to love you well today by listening to what you would have for us. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite writers is Pat Conroy. He's a Southern writer. Uh, Surprise, surprise, being from the South. Uh, For a Christmas present, uh, 
my youngest daughter, our youngest daughter, Claire, and her husband gave me a monograph, sort of an imprint of, a, of the words of uh, one of Conroy's novels called The Prince of Tides. Uh, so if I'm in a small group with you and say, what's your favorite book or what is one of you? Mine is Prince of Tides. And it starts off uh, with this line, first line, my wound is geography, it is also my anchorage, my port of call. Uh, I got introduced to Pat Conroy when I was a young pastor. One of the elders said, hey, uh, Conroy, Pat Conroy's lecture, and I had not read any of his books. I really didn't know who he was, but he says, you've got to hear this guy speak. He was speaking at the Southeastern Center of Contemporary Arts at Winston-Salem, so we're back in the 80s. And so, uh, uh, so I go along with my friend, and I show up in this lecture hall, which seats about 225 or so, one of those descending down to the floor, and the place is packed. There's maybe 350, 400 people sitting in the aisles. I mean, it's packed with people. I thought, wow, this is an event. <laughs> And so Pat Conroy gets up there and he says, uh, I'm going to speak for about an hour and I'm going to tell you some stories about my mom and dad. And will one of you who is watching the clock just kind of wave your hand and say, my time is up. Well, for the next hour and a half, maybe longer, he just tells stories about his mother and his dad. And he has us laughing. I mean, just hysterically, hyena laughing, you know, just really just like snorting. Oh, that is the funniest thing I've ever had. And then he has us weeping. Um, now, for me, it's hard for me to weep, but he just had me right. I was right there. And then at some point I realized these people are not the literati. These are not English teachers, professors. These are people like me who've read this man's writings and it has moved them it's helped them connect with their emotions with their heart um, and so uh, I went away from that and I said I want to read everything that he's ever written okay but he told many stories in there and if I was here longer as your senior pastor I would tell you lots of those stories so anybody who's heard me preach you're going to hear a lot of Pat Conroy stories but I'm going to tell you one of my favorites so Conroy is talking about one of his most famous books. It's, he wrote it about his dad called the, uh, the Great Santini. That was a nickname for his dad. He was a Marine Corps colonel who flew uh, Phantom Jets for the Marine Corps. And he used to say of the men he trained to fly with him, he didn't lead them to drink. He drove them to drink because he was so hard on them. Uh, and so he was a very demanding, harsh father. And so Conroy has a really hard relationship with him. Uh, but in The Great Santini, as he's writing the book about, it's a novel about using his dad as the main character. Um, and so he tells a story, he gets to the end of the story, and as his plot line, he's going to have his father, uh, The Great Santini, die in a plane crash. And so his, his dad, when he read the first, you know, 60 pages of the book, he said to Pat, why do you, son, why do you hate me so much? <laughs> that was the way they, they had that kind of relationship. But his dad and him just, it's, it's an amazing story. But anyway, his dad hung in there and said, Dad, I want you to describe to me what it's like, would be like to crash in your airplane. 
uh, describe to me this scene because this won't spoil it for you, but in the book, in the novel, the Santini crashes and dies. Okay, so anyway, um, uh, so his dad says, oh, okay, all right. So we fly out of Paris Island down in South Carolina. We fly down to the Florida Keys. I'm up there with my boys. I'm leading a squadron. And all of a sudden, I realize the panel, instrument panel is going bad. And, uh, and I realize I got to get back. So he tells them to stay on their mission. He starts flying back up the coast, Florida, into South Carolina to land his plane. And as he's going, smoke starts to come into the cockpit. The plane starts to tremble. And he, he just realized that I'm in trouble and I need to get down lower. So he goes down low over the... Uh, you know, just the marshland there, it's foggy. He's down, he's describing it in great detail. The plane is weaving over like this, you know. And he's coming in to uh, Paris Island to land the plane. And as he's coming in, he's getting more excited. He's in great in detail with his son about, this is what it's like if you're in this situation. The plane is weaving over like this. And so Pat's making notes and he says, okay, dad, go ahead and crash a plane. Okay, go ahead and let the plane crash. Tell me what it would be like to crash. And his son's more, I mean, his dad is more excited. He said, no, son, you got to, so he's telling him more. He said, oh, dad, just crash the plane. And then finally, using expletives to his son, he says, son, I can land this plane. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Carver says, that was my dad. He was too proud, even in his imagination, to think he could ever crash. Now, I've used that illustration a lot with people who are struggling with their problems because they're too proud to ask for help. They're too proud to see how much they need help from God. So one Sunday, I was preaching, and I used that illustration, um, and a guy that I had been working with, a young guy, very gifted uh, man, young man, uh, he slipped me a note uh, after the sermon. He handed me a note, and I opened it up and said, Clyde, I still think I could lay in the plane. <laughs> so, so where are you in your story where you know that what God wants to bring you to is a fresh place of surrender, of dying to yourself, of admitting that you're helpless and that you're weak? Are you sitting there with that joystick going, I, can, I, I don't want to do that. My mentor said, you'll never see a greater miracle than a proud woman or a proud man ask for help. What does it mean to us to enter into Romans 8 and say we're really weak? Um, so weak that we don't even know how to pray. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. You want to pray, you tried to pray, and it just seems it's pointless. <laughs> You know, but why? I mean, I've been praying for a long time for this person or this situation or this promotion or to get married or whatever, and it feels just totally helpless. Let's put our situation with Sarah uh, and Abraham. Uh, you know, the sign and the blessing, ultimate blessing for a woman was to have a child, and here Sarah is old in age, and she is not, it's not going well. <laughs> And she's getting unhappy. And so she wants to help God out. Now, see, here's one of the mistakes that we all make. We, we pray and we think and we think, well, maybe God wants me to do something. And so you start devising things. And I can't tell you how many situations I've been with people when I've said, don't go there. Don't create a Hagar scheme to solve this. Keep waiting. 
Stay helpless. Keep asking. Because I'm afraid if you take this step, you'll, you'll live to regret it. You'll live to regret it. Here in this passage, God's inviting us to not turn to schemes and ways of trying to solve our issues and our problems, but he wants us to pay attention to the value of our weakness. And one way of thinking about weakness is dying to yourself. For we do not know what to pray, for we, uh, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Um... You know, one of the ways to understand the Spirit praying for you is to ask people to pray for you. Uh, this is not some amorphous, you know, illustration out there of, of something that's so mysterious. Yeah, I know it's real, but I have no idea what it's like. But could it be that one of the big steps that you could take is to ask people to pray for you that you really get down to where you're really living, where you're really struggling, where you really need help? Now again, you would think uh, for as much as I know what I've been through, I would be more eager to ask people to pray for me, but I continually have to relearn this lesson. I'm weak, I don't know how to pray, will you pray for me? Now, here's one of the amazing things that happens if you'll go there and you'll let the Spirit pray for you through other people, you'll hear God speak to you through people's prayers. One of my good friends uh, who teaches on prayer, he's got this great illustration of the church where, you know, the church, and he has it like a bodybuilder, uh, but half of the bodybuilders, this muscular, knows the word of God, strong, powerful, all that, and then the other part of his body, it's like a line right down the middle, is his prayer life. And he's these weak, you know, broken, wimpy guy. <laughs> he has no muscles, no strength, but over here, I know the word comes to prayer, whatever. So uh, we were, uh, well, he was at a retreat where he was speaking, and there was a guy there who was critical of what his teaching and what was going on. And so my friend uh, uh, noticed just that this guy really struggled with a critical, negative, caustic spirit. I mean, he just always could find what was wrong. He was always picking on well, why did you spend so much time on that? Or is that really true or whatever? And so my friend just kept listening to him. And my friend said, you know, um, uh, said to him, and they were in a coffee break and they're all standing around. And he says to him, he says, John, uh, who prays for you? Now, uh, that seems like a very inviting and a good question. But as soon as my friend asked John, <laughs> who prays for you? My friend started weeping for him. My friend started groaning for him because he sensed he was so tied in knots by his negative, critical spirit. And the next thing my friend would tell you if you were there is that here's a bunch of guys all standing around a coffee room. They all start weeping. <laughs> they all start groaning. And John starts groaning and weeping for himself. Now, sometimes we're so far down, we're so far out of it, we're stuck. We've lost the ability to feel and understand what we're going through. But my friends, if you want to know practically how this truth can really set you free, ask some people to get around you and pray with you. And you'll hear the Spirit praying. You will enter into a breakthrough you thought you could never have. Now, 
Can that happen without people praying for you? Yes, it can. But most of us, want, we want some answers. We want some relief. We want help. Now, here, let me share with you how it works, though, is that if you begin to ask people to pray, not about, you know, your mother's hurt big toe and, you know, you, this and that, you know, real dumb things that we all tend to pray for. We say, you have a prayer request, and they're important, uh, but um, what's really going on in your heart? Where are you lonely? Where are you afraid? Where are you angry? Where are you sad? Um, that if people begin to pray for you, then... You'll wake up at night, you'll be by yourself, you'll be in your car, you'll be riding your bike, and you'll sense God is working. The Spirit is interceding with you, for you. Now notice what it says here when we observe this, is that when this begins to happen, you have this experience that the one who knows your heart best is searching your heart. And a lot of times we don't even know what we need until we ask for help. So, I'll use myself as Exhibit A here this morning. Um, I've been in situations where um, I know I need help, but I'm too proud to ask for help, too busy to ask for help. I got all kinds of excuses. So, here's, here's the thought process I go through. Why would I ask <clears throat> someone to help me? Because I know what the answer is. I'm lazy. I just need to, I need to work harder. I need to get up earlier, more time in the Word and pray. So why should I ask for help? Because I already know what the answer is. Pride. <laughs> it's just popping right up there. So why would I... And you know what? He's really busy or she's really busy. And why would I take up their time? And why would I waste time asking for help when um, I, I, I know what I'm supposed to do? I understand that. I, you know, I just need to do it. Um, and so, uh, but inevitably, God in his grace wears me down, and I ask for help. And I can't tell you how many times this has happened, so I want to encourage you, if you need help, is to realize sometimes that act of humbling yourself and asking for help, although you know the answer already is, is that God is going to do something and might even surprise you that what you thought you needed is not what you needed, <laughs> You needed something else. And God uses that person, his word, the spirit, to say, here's what you really need, or here is the real key, okay? If you feel powerless to do what God wants you to do, ask for help, admit you're weak. The spirit who searches your heart will show you what you need. And maybe you already know what you need, but you don't have the power to do it. You don't have the power to do what God wants you to do because the Spirit is not there. Now, Paul, through Timothy, warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he lists 19 things that are going to go wrong in the last times. And people are slanderous, they're abusive, they're lovers of money, they're da-da-da-da. And then the number 19, here's what he says, beware in the last days there will be people who know God, but don't know his power. They have a form of godliness. They show up to church. They come to community group. They know the answers. They sing the music. But they don't have any power. And what God is inviting us to here in Romans 8 is do we know the power of God so that we're always letting the good news of the gospel transform us? You see, if church is simply transfer, uh, transferring ideas, 
if we're just going through the motion up here and it's not transforming us, if you're in the liturgy and liturgical prayers, that early morning prayers for Sundays always have in that prayer, change us today. And I didn't grow up around a lot of liturgy, but I would meet with the elders in New York City when I was a pastor there. One of our elders who was an Anglican Episcopal background, he would always pray this simple prayer, Jesus, change us today. And I always thought, well, you know, I, you know, you know, I just didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> you know? uh, I just struggled to hear that prayer because I'm still so proud. But just to encourage you today, there is so much more of the love of Christ for you to know than you could imagine. And the Holy Spirit wants to take you there. That's the Holy Spirit's role, is open your heart, your mind, your will, your life to this massive, epic, ginormous love of God that God has for you. Do you know that? Uh, in reading through some of the commentaries, the commentator says in this passage, what God is trying to show us is that we need our hearts to be melted. In the early 20s, there was a man who moved to the Miami area, had a heart for church planting, and he was just, he was just not, it was not going well. And uh, it was actually a season of his life where he was failing until he realized how much he needed the Holy Spirit. So he wrote a song that many of you have sang, a spirit of the living God fall fresh on me. The first thing he says is melt me. Melt me. Um, is your heart cold? Do you find what I'm saying or what's going on here this morning it's just bouncing off of you? It's, it's like your ice. You're, you, know, you, you know you're under the ice. You know what's going on, but it's just... It's not getting through to you. Uh, God wants to take this passage and melt your heart this morning with the fact that he knows what you need when you need it, and he's ready to give it to you today. <laughs> if you'll just say, Lord, help me. I, I don't know what I need. I, I don't even know how to pray. Or when I do pray, it just feels like a waste of time. Uh, God wants to change all of us to say the best time, the most valuable time, in worship is when we pray. It's not the preparation for the work. It is the work. It's not the preparation for the battle. It is the battle. And friends, we do our best work in prayer. We win when we pray. That's when God moves, is when his people who are called by his name humble themselves and ask for help. And that's why when we get to verse 28 here, a verse that most of us know, um, is that... We know uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now notice there, it doesn't say some things work together for good, but all things work together for good. Circle that word. Keep coming back to it. Think of the things in your life right now that are distraction, distracting, painful, hard, that are creating a cold heart, that are causing you to doubt God's sovereign goodness. Now let's just back up and read these words right before verse 28. And he who searches heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, class, congregation, church family, what is the will of God for your life? What is his will for you? Because you see, all things work together so that you begin to understand this is God's will for my life. 
And this is where a lot of times we get so lost in the weeds, we get the world competes with us, and we lose the absolute joyful glory of saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, and I crown you King of Kings. You know, it's a great uh, hymn we love to sing, crown him with many crowns. So let's fast forward. If we were doing a little children's message here, we brought the children up, they all had their crowns on, and we say, and now Jesus appears, and they'd all take their crowns off and throw them down. But you're not going to experience the joy of that crown if you're living for, is God really good? Is he sovereign? Uh, you're not going to be enjoying uh, your salvation. Because one writer says, you either have to crucify Christ or you have to crown him. You can't live in a middle DMZ zone of, well... Uh, these things I like about Jesus and all that. But I, what I really want, man, the world seems to be so good here, here, and here. I want some of that. And I, yes, I'm a Christian. And you have a form of being a Christian, but you don't know its power. You only know his power when you realize that when Christ died on the cross, here's the beautiful thing, he crowns you first. <laughs> you know, Jesus came to put on your head a crown of loving kindness. I can remember being in India and just being overwhelmed by the idolatry there and all the things that were going on there. It was just sensory, everything overload. And I remember I could not sleep. I was just tossing and turning with the darkness, the evil, the oppression. I mean, I'd never seen dead bodies in the streets and there were dead bodies in the streets that I'm walking through. And I was just like, wow. And God said, tell them that I've come to crown them with loving kindness. Um, the friend, do you live with this beautiful crown of your glory being his loving kindness over your story, in your story? He is for you, and if he's for you, who can be against you? Um, Jesus wants to make real to you through his spirit and even the hard things in your life to value and seek the crown that he puts on you uh, when you're going through hard times because he wants to redeem them and make things that are so awful and terrible something beautiful. Uh, I've lived that story out so many times, I want to live it some more. Uh, one of the reasons that God brought me to be the interim pastor here is that in my heart, he began to convince me to preach the passage, Book of Joel, which there's, you know, I thought, that's great, but Joel is a really hard book to preach. And I was talking to some friends of mine. I said, what are you going to preach on first? I'm going to preach on Joel. They looked at me and go, really? <laughs> they don't know you. Why don't you do something like First John or something easy, you know? I said, no, I got Joel. Because in Joel 2, 25, 26, God says this, I'm going to give back to you the years the locusts have eaten away. I'm going to give back to you what you've lost. Two times over. <laughs> wow. When you're crowned with the grace and mercy of God, you know that not only is God interested in your presence, but he wants to redeem your past. Think about Joseph saying this, and can you say that, you know, what was meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the same word here. God works all things for good in our story. He works all things for the good. Because here's his will for you, is that you would become more like Jesus. You would be swept up and caught up 
in the truth of who he is for you so that your greatest thrill is to become like him. Now, if I get a hold of that, admit that, I need help because I so much am still enamored with my own desires and my passions and my interests. But when I become like him, uh, then I have to get weak. I have to ask for prayer. I have to die. Listen to the Apostle Paul. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering and become like him in his death. Friends, Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man or woman, he says, come and die. Where do you need to die? What would make you want to die unless you saw Jesus going before you, dying in your place, saying, I'm not going to let you be crushed by the weight of the judgment that's coming. I am going to die. I'm going to die in that crash under the weight of the justice of God so that you would never have to be afraid of that. Wow, what a privilege, what a gift. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the power of your word, the truth of it, how you can help us in ways we we don't even know we need to be helped. But we pray now as we come to the table, Lord, you'd help us to be honest and admit we don't don't know how to pray. We need help. There are people and situations in our life that are way beyond and above us, but we need your help. So may you help us, Holy Spirit, search our minds and hearts this morning to find the freedom that only you can give us. Amen.